Hey everyone, and welcome to our one year anniversary episode of Inside the Morgue. Can you believe it? We've been doing this, and you've been listening to it for one year. We're your hosts and dedicated autopsy techs. Jess came up with that adjective. That's a good one. Dedicated. I'm throwing my my hat in the ring there. (laughs) I love that. Jess wrote that one down. I love it. So we are your hosts and dedicated autopsy techs, Jess and Alice. So we started this podcast one year ago as something fun to do with each other and I honestly really can't believe how much our podcast has grown and how many new listeners we have and how many new followers we have on social media. And we honestly love you all and we wouldn't be here without you. So in honor of this special episode, we thought it would be fun to find a cocktail out of our murder and mixology book by Kiera Sonderker. And I have to give a shout out because this was a Christmas gift to me from my favorite autopsy tech, Jess. (laughs) She gave it to me for Christmas. You are my favorite autopsy tech. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) So cute. So we each picked a cocktail out of this book. And this book is so cool because each cocktail has a little true crime story that goes along with it. So we did a little bit deep dive into each true crime that went along with our cocktails. So without further ado, let's get into it. So the story I have for you might be one of the craziest ones I think I've ever took a deep dive into, and this one comes all the way from Moscow, Russia. What better way to tell the story than to make a Moscow mule? That's accurate. That's so good. What a good drink to have for this. So this is the story of Alexander Pekushkin, better known as the chessboard killer. Pekushkin was born on April 9th, 1974, in the Russian part of the Soviet Union, He was initially a sociable child, but all of that changed when he suffered a really bad head injury. He fell backwards off of a swing, which then struck him in the forehead as it swung back. And the experts who have done research on this, they speculate that the damage to the frontal cortex of his brain, this damage produced poor impulse regulation and a tendency toward aggression. So he became really hostile and impulsive, and he was frequently bullied at school. I think this happened with Richard Ramirez, too. Yeah, like something you told me that. very similar happened. And I want to say, I like, he fell, like, off a swing or something, or it was, like, a very similar story. And, and I'm he, not sure. I'm pretty sure he also, he had damage to his frontal cortex. Yeah. Interesting. He was the Night Stalker. For anyone who doesn't know who Richard Ramirez is. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker. He is one of the most well-known. There's, oh, so many documentaries on Netflix about him. But anyway, eventually, Pekushkin's mother decided to transfer him to a special needs school. However, upon reaching early adolescence, his grandfather removed him from this school. This was because he regarded Pekushkin to be intelligent, and the school was more focused on overcoming disability rather than promoting achievement. So Pekushkin moved in with his grandfather, and he was taught how to play chess. He would go on to play against elderly men in Bitsa Park, And unfortunately, Pekushkin continued to be bullied by a lot of the students during his adolescent years. And things took a turn for the worse when his grandfather died, which devastated him and led him to a vodka addiction. He returned to his mother's home and enrolled as a student. Meanwhile, Pekushkin kept playing chess in Bitsa Park and also developed a sadistic hobby in which he would record himself threatening children. He would watch these videos repeatedly to reaffirm his power, but his murderous urges were not satisfied. On July 27, 1992, 18-year-old Pekushkin committed his first murder. 
He planned on killing people with a friend, Mikhail Adichuk, who thought he was only joking at first, but when Adichuk realized that his classmate was being serious, he tried to back out of the situation. Enraged, Pukushkin struck his friend with a hammer and pushed his body into a well. Three days later, Pukushkin was questioned by police about Adichuk's death. There was some evidence pointing to his guilt, but nothing ever came out of the investigation. On May 17, 2001, Pukushkin was in Bitsa Park, playing chess with a man. When the game ended, he invited the man to take a walk with him. Pukushkin, who used his own dog, told him it was the anniversary of his beloved pet's death and that he wanted to visit his grave. The man accompanied him, and they reached an isolated spot in the park. Pukushkin then produced a bottle of vodka and offered him a drink, which he accepted, and the two men drank a toast to the dog before Pukushkin suddenly bludgeoned the man and dumped his body into a nearby well. Maria Verecheva was one of the very few lucky people enough to survive Pukushkin. On February 23, 2002, he lured the pregnant saleswoman into Bitsa Park and pushed her into the same well where most of his victims were disposed of. Oh my god, this is the part of the story that I know. Like, this is all ringing <laughs> a bell. Like, I know I've heard this story before, but this is the detail that is... I know, like, we're telling each other the stories, and we know, like, some parts. Yes, yeah, sorry. We each picked our own cocktail and are telling each other a story. But yes, this is the part of the story that, like, I... Because I knew the name sounded familiar. Oh my gosh, this is horrifying. This is all horrifying. Yeah, this is probably up there in the craziest story like true crime story I've actually took like a personal deep dive into like I found so much and this is a huge story to begin with and there are so many details but anyway going back to her she clung to the sides of the well and he held her by her hair and smashed her head into the concrete walls repeatedly before she actually fell down he left and he believed her to be dead fortunately she survived and managed to climb out of the well without suffering a miscarriage. Thank God. Oh my God. That is insane. Vericheva reported this crime to the police, but since she was an illegal immigrant, she was forced to drop her claim that Pakushin had attempted to kill her. I am so pissed. That is the worst. That is so messed up. Right? So many things could have been avoided. So many lives could have been saved if people just listened to this poor woman who went through hell to come and tell her story. Sorry. And they're like, no, we can't help you. Yeah. You don't belong to Russia. That is insane. So there was another survivor, Mikhail Lobov, a teenage skater. And on March 10th, 2002, after being led by Pikushkin into Bitsa Park with the promise of cigarettes and vodka, he was struck over the head and pushed down the very same well. Thinking that this boy was also dead, Pikushkin left the scene. Luckily, Lobov's jacket had gotten caught on a piece of metal inside the well, saving him from plummeting into the icy waters. He was able to climb out, and days later, he confronted Pakushkin, only to be threatened with arrest by the police. On November 15, 2003, a neighbor, Konstantin Polikarpov, was invited for a drink in Bitsa Park. Pakushkin bludgeoned him with a hammer three times before throwing him into the well. Again, he departed, assuming that the victim was dead. Parlacaro successfully climbed out, but he had suffered head trauma, causing him to remember nothing about the attack. The police began to take the murders more seriously when a former policeman had turned up dead. Murdered on November 16, 2005, his body had been left out in the open instead of being disposed of in the well, presumably as sort of a challenge for the police. 
Pakushkin has started to become more cocky by leaving bodies out in plain sight, but he was still careful enough to avoid being captured. Pakushkin committed his final murder on June 14th, 2006. Marina Moskalova worked at the same store where another woman, Larissa Kalagina, had worked up before suddenly vanishing. She had been killed by Pakushkin, who was a co-worker, on April 12th. Despite this, Kalagina's strange disappearance did not seem to phase Moskalova, assuming she was even aware of it. She took a walk with her co-worker in Bitsa Park, where he then struck her with a hammer. What Pakushkin did not know was that shortly before going out with him, Moskalova had left a note with her son, telling him where she was going and who was with her. The note contained his phone number. The boy called Pakushkin, who told him that he had not seen his mother. Obviously suspicious, the boy informed his father about this, who then proceeded to call the police. Another thing Pakushkin was unaware of was that Moskalova's clothing contained a Metro card, so CCTV footage from that station where she had bought the ticket was reviewed, and it displayed Pakushkin walking alongside her. Two days later, he was arrested. One particular piece of evidence against Pakushkin was the fact that he kept a logbook. This logbook contained 64 squares inside, very much like a chessboard. Each square represented someone who was killed. 62 had been filled in, which was later lowered to 60 when Pakushkin learned that two of his victims had survived. 60? 60. Alleged, yeah. I, so... Out of the alleged 60, only 48 were confirmed. When you first mentioned you were doing this story, and you mentioned, oh yeah, he's called like the chessboard killer, and you explained his obsession with chessboard, I told you, this doesn't sound real, this sounds like a Batman villain. It does. I love comic books, and I love I love Batman, and like, Batman villains are scary, and they, but they're just so far out there scary, and they don't seem, like, this could be a, like, this, I just can't process that this is an actual thing that happened in real life, and it happens, like, somewhat recently. Somewhat recently, in the early 2000s. Yeah. Like, I know we're in 2023, and that seems, like, so long ago, like, 20 years, but 20 years oh, for, God. like, a true crime <laughs> is fairly recent. That just hurt me. I feel like most of the true crime stories and, like, serial killers we all know are from, like, the 70s. I immediately always just picture that it's the 70s. Oh, yeah, because they're all basic white men who get away with everything. Because it's the 70s. Because it's the 70s. <laughs> I had to say, I couldn't, I didn't know that he filled out 60 of the spaces. That's insane. So I wonder, only 48 were confirmed. So I wonder if he, in his mind, like filled them out because he knew those were his next victims, but he had only killed 48 up to then. Only 48 is still an insane, insane confirmed number. This guy was a monster. According to Pakushkin, he idolized Andrei Chikatilo, another serial killer who committed horrific killings in Russia. He stated that his goal was to surpass his idol's confirmed body count of 52 victims by murdering at least 64, representing the number of squares on a chessboard. Pakushkin had also said that even if he did reach the 64 murders, that he would kill more people unless he was stopped. On October 27, 2007, Pakushkin was convicted of murder and attempted murder. He asked the Russian court to add more victims to his body count. That's not a lie. That is true. He said that in court. I hate this guy. I know mean, it's a controversial take, but this guy sucks. During his trial, he was kept in a glass cage for his own protection. The judge took an hour to read the verdict, which was life imprisonment with the first 15 years to be spent in solitary confinement. And as of today, 
Pukushkin is still in solitary confinement, but in 2016, a woman known as Natalia visited him, and the two actually ended up getting married. No. He's married? Disgusting. Now, I just had a flashback to when Ted Bunny married, what was her name? Carol Ann Boone, like, during his trial, like, on the stand. Oh, my God. And I thought that his MO or his modus operandi was really interesting. So Pakushkin would usually lure his victims with the promise of vodka or other promising items like cigarettes for the one victim. He mostly targeted homeless men, but he also sometimes went after women and children. So he didn't have like a preference like how most serial killers are targeting young, white, blonde women. Once he got his victims to a secluded spot in a nearby forest, he would trick them into paying respect to his deceased dog. While the victim was busy doing that, Pikushkin would bludgeon them with a hammer, and the blows were usually enough to kill him, but in other times, he would throw them down the well while they were still alive, sometimes not even using the hammer at all. The well was where he typically disposed his bodies, but he later began leaving them out in the open, and Pikushkin often shoved the broken bottles of vodka into the gaping holes of his victim's skull, but... He never once left any traces of fingerprints or DNA at his crime scenes. What? I don't know how. Gloves? Like, I... Was it cold enough where it would be suspicious if, like, the people saw him wearing gloves? Like, was he just covered up a lot? Like, did he have a hat? Like, maybe he it was cold, so he had a coat and a hat on, so no hair. Probably. I I picture Russians just as always wearing a, a large winter coat and a hat. You just always think it's cold in Russia. It's always cold in Russia, is it not? If anybody is listening from Russia, I'm so sorry. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know anything about Russia. But as a way of keeping count, he would also carry around a chessboard and fill in the squares whenever he killed someone. For, sorry, were you going to say something? No, I'm just, I sorry, you're just looking at my facial expression <laughs> during this story. Like, he just carried around a chessboard? I mean, I guess, like, people bring chessboards and, like, play in the park and stuff. I feel like a very stereotypical thing that I just think of Russia. Chess? That's a normal thing? They all, they're all cold and they play chess. Why do you associate chess with Russia? You ever watched The Queen's Gambit? I actually haven't. She ends in Russia and she plays chess. Okay, I, this is me. This is me problem. <laughs> I haven't watched The Queen's Gambit. Okay, no, I miss Good show. I know, I need to watch it. Getting into the autopsies, which we love as autopsy text. The autopsies on his victims revealed only that their skulls were fractured by an object with an angled edge, most likely a hammer, but with no other evidence and no apparent links between the victims, because again, they were kind of random. He didn't have like a type. The investigation was moving very slowly. That's also like Richard Ramirez. He didn't have a type either, which is why he got away for so long. Anyone was a target. He was just looking to kill. So when Pukushkin was finally caught, he delighted in telling investigators the details of his murders. He blamed police for not finding all of his victims, like they were in some sick partnership where Pukushkin started the job and the police were just expected to finish it and keep score like he was. I think he thought he was in a literal chess game with the police. Oh my god! I was just gonna say, this is straight up like something out of a Batman comic like the villain is always like Batman you're just as guilty as I am in this horrible thing that happened because you could have stopped me and you didn't and like this is insane that this is real and police didn't know if they could believe him because of the horrifying details they thought that he was making most of it up but before they could take him to trial they had to follow up on every murder he claimed he had committed and to make the case airtight, forensic evidence had to back up Alexander's claims, so that was needed for the trial. 
one of the victims, they found that they had bits of yellow plastic in the head wounds. And at first, they thought it was part of the murder weapon that had come off and they tested it against the handle of a hammer found in Alexander's apartment. This is the hammer that he admitted to using and that hammer had deep scratches at a point close to the head of the hammer where some of the flakes had come off and the plastic on the hammer matched the plastic bits found in the postmortem examination. If you want to learn more about this case, there's a few podcasts that covered it. My Favorite Murder covered this case, and so did the podcast That's Why We Drink and Evidence Locker. So that's my story for you. While I drink my Moscow Mule. You gave me so many details I didn't know about this story. So I'm remembering now, I heard about it on My Favorite Murder when they covered it. That's where I first heard of it. I'd never heard of it before. But wow. I didn't know. Maybe they covered it all on my favorite murder, and I don't remember because I haven't listened to that episode in a while. But wow, there's a lot. I just this doesn't seem real. I know people always say that about crazy true crime things, like oh, I thought it was a mannequin. Like, but <laughs> this I can't wrap my mind around this guy being an actual person and not some kind of crazy comic book villain. I just can't believe that he killed so many people. And it took a really long time for them to finally catch him. Or for the police to actually believe the stories and the murders that were happening. Yep. Freaking Maria Vericheva, who dragged herself out of the well, pregnant, didn't have a miscarriage, and then went to police to only not be believed? Yeah. Not right. Wow. That is an insane story. I'm gonna take a sip of my drink. I feel like you have a more insane story, though. I don't know. This is pretty crazy. (laughs) Also, side note, we both chose Russian-based stories, not on purpose. Unintentional. So the drink slash story that I chose to do, so the drink I'm drinking in the book is titled The Russian Avalanche. It is a white Russian and... I just want to make a side note. I didn't buy all the correct ingredients because the only bottle of Kahlua at the liquor store by me was a giant bottle that I didn't feel like buying. (laughs) So I bought a chocolate cream liqueur instead. And so for anyone who doesn't know, White Russian has, or at least the White Russian I'm drinking, has vodka. Like it's supposed to have like a coffee cream liqueur and like cream. So I have a chocolate cream liqueur and a little splash of coffee in here. And it's quite delightful. Highly recommend. And the story to go along with my drink is The Mystery of the Diet Law of Pass, which was also covered on My Favorite Murder, and also where I first heard about this. I also think I was drawn to this story in the Mixology and Murder book, because Coast and I have been binge-watching Yellow Jackets, so any story about something mysterious happening in the wilderness, I'm like obsessing over. That was why I was drawn to this story. So for anyone not familiar with this case, in February of 1959, a group of nine Soviet hikers died under mysterious circumstances under the North Ural Mountains. The group was made up of very experienced trekkers and was led by a man named Igor Dyatlov. Their trek began on January 27th, 1959, and There actually was a 10th trekker that was with the group originally that ended up turning back due to injuries. He had like arthritis that was acting up and he didn't think he could make it the rest of the hike. So he turned around close to the beginning of the hike and he survived because he wasn't there the rest of the time. And his name was Yuri Yudin and he comes in to make some comments after the events. So diaries and cameras found around the last campsite of the group made it possible to track the route up to the day of the quote incident. So on January 31st, the group arrived at the edge of the Highland area and prepared for a climb. They cached food and equipment there that they would use for their trip back. 
on February 1st of that year, the trekkers began their hike through the pass. Everything seemed to go as planned, and they made their camp on the opposite side of the pass the next night. However, the weather worsened and snow decreased the group's visibility greatly, and this led them to losing their direction and moving west. And once the group realized that they were moving in the wrong direction, they decided to just stay where they were, set up camp, and regroup before moving forward. So they settled at the slope of the mountain, which didn't offer much protection from the weather. And Yuri, who is the trekker who turned back at the beginning when asked later on, assumes that they did this because they didn't want to lose the altitude that they had gained, and so they decided to camp where they were. Before leaving for the trek, Igor Dyatlov agreed to send a telegram to their sports club as soon as they returned to their base camp, as soon as they were able to, to tell everybody that they were safe. So when no telegram came... The travelers' relatives demanded that a rescue operation be done. So on February 26, 1959, a search party found the group's abandoned and badly damaged tent. I just feel like I had such a Long Island accent when I said that. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Bad. <laughs> Especially when you say arthritis. <laughs> we can keep it in. I'm a New Yorker. <laughs> Guys, I'm from, I'm from New York. Sometimes it comes out. <laughs> I spent some time with my family this weekend, so I think I, I was talking like a New Yorker, you know. <laughs> Mikhail Sheravin, who found the tent, said that it was half torn down and covered with snow, and it was empty, and all the group's belongings and shoes were left behind. Investigators said the tent appeared to have been cut open from the inside, so they were inside the tent and cut their way out, not like somebody cut into their tent. There were only nine sets of footprints for all the hikers, and they were left by people only wearing socks or a single shoe or even some barefoot footprints, so they were leaving in a hurry. The footprints led to the edge of the woods nearby, the opposite side of the pass. Here, the searchers found remnants of a small fire, as well as two bodies, those of Krivonyshenko and Doroshenko. They were shoeless and dressed only in underwear, which could be the result of something called paradoxical undressing. So for anyone who doesn't know, paradoxical undressing is something that can be seen in cases of hypothermia. So when someone is experiencing hypothermia, they get so cold to the point where they actually feel hot. And so they start to undress, which actually obviously isn't good to do when you're in very cold climates. So a lot of the times, I've never personally seen this, but a lot of the times in hypothermia cases, I've heard of people finding them like almost basically nude because they just felt so warm they kept taking off their clothes. Really weird phenomenon that happens. I remember learning about this when we were doing our master's program. Yeah. One of the doctors was teaching that lecture and about whatever topic hypothermia was under. I remember just thinking like the reaction that your body has to the point you're so cold you feel like you're burning up is insane. Mm -hmm. I remember he was describing the case to us and he basically just described like was it a woman in a park and it was like snowing it was a woman in a park found completely nude in the snow and he just explained the situation it was like what do you think happened and a bunch of people were like oh my god she was dumped she was murdered she was murdered and it's i mean obviously like that's what you think when you first see like a nude body out in the open i would think body dump that's immediately what i was thinking too and he's like no this woman which i think unfortunately is a sad case but uh, she was older and wandered and like experienced hypothermia and undressed and was found like that. So yeah, it's crazy. Back, I almost just said back in the show, but we're not talking about shows this week. <laughs> so back to the case. So where they found these two bodies only in their underwear, the branches of the tree near the bodies had broken branches, which 
seem to indicate that they like tried to climb up these trees to get a better view, perhaps to look for their campsite because they couldn't see it from down where they were and they were trying to get back to where they were going. So further on in the woods, the searchers kept walking and they found three more bodies, that of Dyatlov, Kolmgorova, and Slobodin. The positions that the bodies were in suggested that they died while trying to find their camp. So it was like they were wandering, trying to wander back. And the remaining four trekkers' bodies weren't found for another two months. So on May 4th, 1959, under four meters of snow and further in the woods, they were finally found. And three of these four bodies were dressed warmly. So suggesting that they perhaps took some clothing from like their hikers that had passed and undressed themselves. They might have realized what was happening and took some extra layers for themselves. And initially, medical examination found no injuries that explained their death. And thus, it was originally ruled hypothermia as well. But Slobodin had a small crack in his skull, but not enough to be a fatal wound. However, the exams of the four bodies that were found in May suggested more severe injuries. Thibault Brignoles had major skull damage. Dubinina and Zolotarov had major chest fractures. And the force that caused this damage was said to be extremely high, similar to a car crash. So this isn't like they got in an altercation with another human being. This was something way more forceful. They didn't have any external injuries that lined up with these fractures, suggesting that they had been subjected to high levels of pressure. So all four of the bodies that were found in May had soft tissue damage around the head and face. Dubinina was missing her tongue, eyes, and part of her lips, and facial fragments of skull bone. Zolotarov had a missing eye, or two missing eyes, and Alexander Kolotov was missing his eyebrows. The medical examiner ruled that these injuries were post-mortem due to the location of bodies near the stream. Scavengers might have taken some parts. They had been down for quite some time. So available parts of the inquest files stated the following for all nine of these deaths. Six members of the group died of hypothermia, three of fatal injuries. There were no indications that other people were nearby the camp. The tent was ripped open from the inside. The victims died about 68 hours after eating. Traces of the camp shows that all of the members left of their own accord on foot, and some levels of radiation were found on all of the clothing. The fatal injuries were not caused by human beings, and they made sure to state this to dispel rumors that the indigenous Mansi people had anything to do with this, because I think people immediately thought that the indigenous people of this land had done something, and that wasn't true, so they didn't want any negative rumors to affect these people. This is the crazy part to me. Released documents contained no information on the decedent's internal organs, which is like a huge part of an autopsy report. That's like 70% of the autopsy report. Yeah. And also, clearly, there were no survivors from this group. All of the mysterious circumstances around this tragic incident have clearly led to a lot of conspiracy theories, including people thinking it was a government cover-up or just an avalanche. People think it might have been a Yeti attack or even like some kind of UFO involvement. If you want to do a deep dive into those conspiracy theories, there are websites that will go deep. However, an article from Popular Mechanics by Tim Newcomb that was published in February of this year, 2023, right around the 64th anniversary of this, suggests that new evidence might lead people closer to the truth. Add-in reports to the original reports say that the morgue where the bodies were examined was sealed off while the bodies were being examined, and the KGB intervened and had the hikers' organs shipped off for lab work. 
In 2019, the official prosecutor general in the Urals Federal District hoped to dispel wild theories by concluding that an avalanche is what caused these hikers' deaths. But in February 2023, a Russian newsletter reported on a press conference that introduced a new theory that the decedents' families seemed to be on board with. Researchers seem to think that a failed Russian rocket launch caused a man-made disaster that caused these hikers' deaths. A member of the rescue party that was searching for the hikers, Vladislav Karolin, remembers seeing, quote, fireballs moving east to west in the sky as they searched. A researcher named Vadim Skimnimsky believes that these fireballs were the exhaust gases from a launched rocket. Russia was carrying out missile launch tests in February 1959, which is when the hikers were there, but reports also said that the snow around the camp appeared to have melted in a pattern that didn't line up with natural weather events. The research team believes that a launching and failure of an R-12 liquid single-stage medium-range ballistic missile resulted in a nitric acid fog reaching the camper's tent. So nitric acid is a colorless and highly corrosive gas, or acid, I'm sorry, and is used to oxidize a liquid-fueled rockets, and it can cause confusion and pain, which might explain if it, like, seeped through their tent, they ripped their way out and were trying to run from it in confusion, and then they were exposed to the elements, or they might have been thrown by some kind of explosion for i don't oh my know God. but that is closer to the truth i don't know if it necessarily explains the fatal injuries seen on the last three bodies that were found in the group of four in may that had all the crazy fractures because so i don't know if it explains why they might have been thrown in such a way that would cause that those were the ones that were found farther away farther away but there, I don't, there was like, so there were melting patterns in the snow. I don't know if that's indicative of like some kind of explosion that scattered them. Mm-hmm. But other, it's, it show the footprints show that they all left on foot, which is what confuses me. Because if they were thrown, there'd be no footprints. But there were nine separate pairs of footprints leaving the tent. So I don't know. But this seems to be the one that people most believe and seems to make the most sense to people. Well, yeah, nitric acid causing the confusion. If they were in the tent and started to feel all that pain and wanted to like rip their way out and then run and mm-hmm. uh, running into the elements when you are trying to run away from nothing. Either way, I... I honestly, I didn't know a lot of details from this case. I just knew that this happened in Russia. There were nine deaths. I knew the one survivor. I didn't realize there were so many other fan theories, like a Yeti attack. Yeah, I I didn't deep dive into those because I didn't want to give too much credit to conspiracy theories. But if you're interested in what some people thought, I think Yeti attack and UFO involvement were huge as well as like avalanche. But I think some of the like snow pattern on the mountain didn't line up with like what an avalanche would look like. I don't know what an avalanche looks like, but experts or maybe it wasn't experts. Someone said it didn't look like an avalanche. But what struck me is so weird is there was nothing in the autopsy or case file about the internal organs on any of these which is also like super concerning because if there was something and the kgb was involved and they knew that this something caused whatever to the internal organs and they're trying to cover up something that was from a military test missile i don't know it's all speculation so i don't know where these quote add-in reports came from we will link uh, the Popular Mechanics article that I read. What outside lab 
did they send these organs to that don't have and there's no i don't know like paper trail oh my god i I don't know if that's standard to do in some places like if they thought maybe i don't know if these were exposed to radiation so they didn't want to test them in their own place so they sent them somewhere else that had right we had a case like that where there was she had like all this radiation oh work done in her mouth and there were like radiation seeds in there and it was hazardous for us to do the autopsy, so we, like, sent the body back to the hospital so they could perform it. So, I mean, that, I believe that, that if there was radiation and they didn't want to expose themselves by cutting the organs themselves and they'll send it to an outside lab, I believe that. Because they found traces of radiation on the clothing. I don't know what the traces were, like, how strong the radiation was. Mm-hmm. The part about not having any report or paper trail, chain of custody from the organs leaving and then it was picked up by this lab, but then they never received the reports back and the final autopsy report isn't really a final report. Yeah. I Maybe it's confidential. I don't know. I don't know. Usually, like, cause and manner of death is, like, at least here, it's public record. Yeah. But I think it's just there's so little information that people are drawn to it and like make up their own answers and are just like trying to trying to figure out and that's what people have been doing for literally 64 years because they want their own answers so they're going to make up a story that fits the the role that they're trying to make yeah yeti did it there's ufo involvement they ufo threw these people and made their injuries people will believe that (laughs) so this was a fun episode but i want to keep talking about how we've been doing a podcast for a year. Oh, so we've had this podcast for a whole year. How does that make you feel? I'm proud of us that we've kept it up for a year. Same. I remember I was thinking about this recently, two different things. Like I was just thinking about how many cool people we've met by doing this podcast. Like we're friends with so many people on Instagram and like we chit chat with people on Instagram and we we've collaborated with so many cool like people in this field just because we wanted to start a fun little podcast yeah i feel like we've met so many cool people in the field of forensics because i mean forensics in overall seems like a really big field but it really isn't forensics Mm -hmm. is a very niche field and it i don't know it's just been real and everyone we've met has been amazing you're all my friends and i love you I'm just so excited. I I'm just so proud of us for keeping up with it for a whole year because we're not we're not doing it for the money. We're really not making very much money off of this. We do this every week. We're doing it because we <laughs> enjoy this and we, we do love, it for fun. We love hanging out with each other. We love watching these shows and giving our two cents to these autopsy scenes. And I love that you guys actually like listening to us complain about these shows. Right? I love that <laughs> this is something that people want to hear. Yeah. They want to hear two random autopsy texts talk about true crime dramas and how they're not realistic. You know what I was thinking about recently that's also pretty crazy? And we've gotten this comment a lot is that people think we've known each other forever. When we started this podcast, we'd only known each other for like three or four months. And I remember getting nervous. But this job makes us so close. I did. And I, I, I like we clicked right away. And we got yeah. so close so quickly. And I remember thinking, I got, I was, I was loving doing the podcast, but I got scared that I was, that like something was going to go wrong and that like I was going to mess something up. And I was like, oh, I don't want Jess to get mad at me about something on the podcast and then we can't be friends anymore. But <laughs> it will never happen. It hasn't happened. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank God. It's true. Because you, I met you in February and we started this podcast in 
June. Mm-hmm. That's really not a long time to like know someone. Yeah, and I remember we would get like feedback from people listening, and they'd be like, "How long have you guys known each other? You're chatting like you're such you have good- great chemistry." And I was like, "We do have great chemistry. We've only known each other for like three or four months." And that was that was also a big thing. Because I was part of your hiring process yes. for a job, and our boss, he runs our office, he's the chief deputy. He said to me when we had, like, a list of names, he was like, make sure, like, you're working with this person basically every day, all day. Like, you need to have a good, like, chemistry connection with them. Otherwise, like, you're not going to be having fun doing your job, and you need to have, like, a good mentality back there. So that was, like, in the back of my head. I was like, whoever we hire, I need to click with them. And I clicked with you. And I love you. I love you too. You're my favorite autopsy tech. You're my favorite autopsy tech. I just, I remember getting, you called me for my phone interview. So like I, everyone listening, I did a phone interview first and then they called me back to come in for an in-person interview. Jess did my phone interview. <laughs> and I know we, we talked about this on our Q&A episode, but I remember I felt like I was so nervous to call you because you called me and you left me a message because I didn't answer my phone right away and I called you back. And I remember being so nervous because I feel so awkward on the phone sometimes. And I, and I hate talking on the phone. I've done other phone interviews before where I just felt so awkward. But with you, I felt like I was talking to a friend and I thought it was so weird. I was like, I I've never met this person but like I'm really enjoying chatting with them about like <laughs> what this job is like and that's how I felt and I was like I remember I hung, I was home visiting my family when I got the call everybody was so excited for me and I got off the phone and my mom asked me how it went I was like I think it went well I was like even if it didn't like I want to be this person's friend like this was a really fun phone interview <laughs> and look where we're at now look at us we have a podcast and we love each other. We love each other. We're besties. We work with each other through thick and thin at work. We've trauma bonded. Yes, we have. Nobody else I'd rather trauma bond with. <laughs> I wouldn't want to do this job with anybody else. Aww. It was going to make me cry. And I remember when I first started, I was talking to my dad and I always brought you up. I was like, oh, me and Jess did this and me and Jess do this. And he's like, it's so good that you two get along because he's like, can you imagine how miserable it would be if you guys didn't click? I was like, I know. It would be awful. It would suck. I'd quit. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but we just want to say from the bottom of our hearts, thank you guys for listening to us. If you've been here from the beginning, if you've just tuned in a few weeks ago and you're trying to catch up on all of our episodes because there's 52 of them out now. Thank you guys so much for listening and supporting us, for enjoying our podcast enough to listen to an episode or two. I couldn't agree more. I've made so many cool connections. I love when you guys interact with us, like on our Instagram. I love hearing from you guys. I love hearing show suggestions from you guys. And I don't know. I love hearing from people that are trying to get into forensics and are like, oh my God, I love listening to your podcast. And I'm like, do it. Go to forensics. You can do it. Because I told myself for years that I couldn't do it. And look at me now. You can do it too. I know. I love the people who find us and they're like, wow, maybe I want to do forensics. Yes, you can. You do and do it. (laughs) It's cool. And everybody I've interacted with also in forensics through this podcast has been super cool and also super smart and educational and like just inviting of newer people in forensics. So guys, it's a cool field. If you want to be in it, be in it. You can do it. Couldn't have said it better myself. Because we're the same person. <laughs> I, right? We are. We share the one brain cell. <laughs> Tomorrow's your day with the brain cell. Um, <laughs> I think today was my day. Tomorrow's your day. Okay. Are you saying I had no brain? I didn't. I, I kept, I walked back and forth. 
I kept going. I'll just tell a quick story. I, w- I had to get something out of my car from the office and we need like a key card to swipe in. So at first I went to go out to my car, but I forgot my key card. So I turned around quickly before the door shut, got my key card. But then I forgot my car keys. So I had to run back in and Jess's Jess's <laughs> cubicle is right next to mine. She's like, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm trying to go to my car, but I keep forgetting stuff. So you're right. You had the brain cell today. Tomorrow is my day. Tomorrow is your day. You'll have it. Yeah. <laughs> Tomorrow. To end this episode, thank you guys so much for listening to Inside the Morgue. If you enjoy our podcast and want to learn more about forensics, we're going to be here still. We're not stopping anytime soon, so we're going to keep coming out with episodes weekly for you guys. You can find us on Instagram at Inside the Morgue Pod and DM us with any episode suggestions you may have. We'll be back next week with a brand new dissection. Bye! Bye.